Keep your Bibles out to Numbers chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. Not reading the whole chapter, but we'll be digging into parts of it and get a sense of what God is teaching us here. You know, for the first ten chapters of the book of Numbers, we are treated with this really growing sense of anticipation and hope, a sense of the near victory that Israel is going to experience as they possess as they wait to possess the promised land that had been promised so long ago it's just on the verge of marching into the promised land and taking possession of it until we get to chapter 11 and then the wheels start to fall off of Israel this is a usual pattern for God's people actually throughout the Bible we see this faith and hope is not what the lasting legacy of God's people is. What's more common is failure. Faith and hope are fleeting. The failure of God's people is what lasts. We don't have a catalog of saintly people in the Bible. We have a catalog of sinners who have been saved by God's grace. It's God's faithfulness, His hope that lasts throughout the legacy of people whose wheels fall off pretty regularly in their lives. There are people like you and I. And here in Numbers chapter 11, the particular way that the wheels fall off of the nation of Israel is that they begin to grumble because of the hardships of their lives. That's the way we're introduced to Numbers chapter 11. The people complain in the hearing of the Lord because of the misfortunes in their lives. And they're not really specific here what kind of misfortunes there were. They were a people in the wilderness. You can imagine as they sojourned from one place to another, things were difficult in their lives. Just daily life itself was difficult. But they complain. And God responds. And his response seems a little extreme. He breaks out in wrath and fire and consumes some of the outlying parts of the camp that seems to be an extreme response to a minor sin if it's sin at all what's the big deal every culture grumbles it's a universal human condition as i was thinking about it this week the more i realize that most of my day is spent in some way or another complaining about something grumbling I think, isn't usually seen as a sin. We aren't aware of how often we do it. In fact, in our culture, it's treated as a virtue. We value free speech. It's one of the things that makes our country uniquely great amongst the countries in this world. It's not that we critique. We all critique. Every country, every people around this world has critiques of their country. What's unique about our culture is that we so highly value the freedom to critique our culture and our government that we put boundaries in place to make sure it's kept. That's a real freedom. But what I want us to get our hands around this morning isn't just the freedom to be critical. What I want us to get around this morning really isn't even how much we grumble. What I want us to see from this text this morning is how the gospel transforms a complaining heart. I want us to look at three things. I want us to look at first, I want us to see the cause of a grumbling or complaining heart. Then I want us to see, secondly, God's response 
to a grumbling or complaining heart. And then the third thing I want us to see is what the cure is for a grumbling or complaining heart. The root problem, the cause here is this. It's dissatisfaction with whatever God has currently provided in your life. Grumbling is discontentedness, a thanklessness. Although I think even under beneath that, under beneath, I just made that word up on the fly this morning. If that shows up in the next version of the dictionary, I want credit. J-O-I-N-E-R, that's how we spell it. Underneath even thanklessness and discontentedness really is the root of unbelief. Unbelief at its worst kind. See, the Israelites weren't just calling into doubt whether God could provide for them. In our discontentedness, in our thanklessness, we don't just doubt that God will provide. We really are doubting His character. We're doubting His goodness. We're considering it a possibility that He could lie to us. He could say, I will provide for you and care for you. You are safe in my presence. I am your rock and your refuge. And then at the same time, leave us out to dry. You call in the question is goodness. Essentially, in discontentedness and grumbling and in complaining, calling into question God's goodness, questioning Him and accusing Him of having mal intentions towards us. It is a dangerous thing for us to treat our desires as if they are morally neutral. Let me say that again. It's a dangerous thing to treat our desires as if they are morally neutral. There are two ways that our desires get corrupted. The first is that we want the wrong things. I want dessert for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That is a bad thing. It would be a good thing for me to want fresh, good fruits and vegetables for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't want those things. So I want the wrong things. That's one of the ways our desires get corrupt. The other way I think is not so obvious, and it's this. We want good things too much. And that's where Israel is being tempted here in chapter 11, verse 4. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel wept, literally in the Hebrew here, wailed aloud. They wept this, what that we had, all that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we hate in Israel that cost us, in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. All, all we have now is this stinking manna to look at. They were wanting good things, but those good things, cucumbers, leeks, our own children, this might not sound very exciting to you, but actually in, for people wandering in the wilderness, this is where their strength would have come from. They would have come from good food, eating the right, the right food, wanting meat instead of just this manna that God provided. We'll see what manna is in a second. They wanted good things, but they wanted them with such a great desire that it had begun to consume their life. Notice that I'm not saying they wanted too much of a good thing. It wasn't that they wanted too much cucumbers or too many leeks or too many onions and garlic. They wanted a good thing. What I'm saying is that the problem with, wasn't with wanting too much meat. It was that they wanted meat too much. 
It consumed them. Their cravings were out of control. And this is what happens in our lives. Our desires for good things can grow so out of control that we are held captive to them. They become our prisoner. We are held in prison to them. It's a rut an addict gets in. Can't get out of. But you know what? That addict's heart is in all of us. And so you need to know, we need to know this. Sometimes it is an act of God's judgment to give us what we want. Israel grumbles against God. Verse 4. But look what happens in verse 20 that we read earlier. God says, you want meat? Fine, I'll tell you what, I will give you meat. I'll give you so much meat that you will eat for a whole month meat until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. You see what he's done with their grumbling and complaining? He's saying that unbelief is under that, but really underneath the unbelief, the reason that you're grumbling is because you want meat more than you want me. And so he says, because you have rejected the Lord, I'm going to give you what you want. Their craving was out of control. And in verse 34, the place where they experienced God's act of judgment on them, they named Kibroth Hatava, which means literally graves of craving. And did you catch it in Romans chapter 1? Chad had read earlier, verse 24. Paul says this. This is the way that God punished those who had left worship of Him and worshiped the created thing instead. Their desires became so out of control that He gave them over to the lusts of their heart. That was an act of judgment on them. And then this long list of sins is listed out. The root cause, idolatry, cravings that grew so out of control that they consumed them, they owned them, they were captive to them. And God gave them over. Fine, he says, if you're going to pursue that instead of me, I'll give you what you want. That should serve as a warning to us. It should serve as a warning to us that we must be careful about our desires so that our desires don't become our gods. But it also should serve as a comfort to us. Sometimes it's an act of God's kindness to withhold from you certain things that you desire because He cares too much for you to give it to you. In other words, He desires you so much that He won't give you the things that you desire. He knows that if He gives them to you, they will rule your life. The cause of a grumbling heart, discontentedness, thanklessness, unbelief, and idolatry. Second, I want us to see God's response to a grumbling heart. I want us to go, so if, if the first is we've seen the cause of a grumbling heart, and we've seen that it's really gross, the thing I want us to see next is how God responds to it, because there's more bad news to be heaped upon the bad news. There's really two responses here. A harsh response and a favorable response. Look at verses 1 through 3. The people 
complained to the Lord about their misfortunes, and the Lord heard it, and his anger kindled, and fire broke out from the Lord. And then jump down to the end of the chapter. He gives a meat to eat. Quail hovered above the ground as far as one day's hike in one direction and another day's hike in another direction for three feet above the ground. Quail was everywhere. They could just reach down and a child could reach down and, and grab one, have dinner and his hand. It was that easily accessible. In verse 33, while the meat was yet still between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, that name is called today, that place, Graves of Craving. That seems harsh, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that seem to be like it's a disproportionate response? And it's written to shock us. I mean, Moses includes this in this way, in this place, in Numbers chapter 11, to shock us out of complacency, to cause us to wonder, wonder how is it that we could be treating, complaining against the Lord so, a grumbling heart so lightly. But notice how Moses responds to the complaining of God's people in verse 11. I love this. Why have you, he says this to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I not conceive all this people? Did I not give birth that I should say to them, carry them on bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to the fathers? Where am I to get meat? He starts complaining. You see what the complainer people do to the leader? The leader starts complaining about the complaining people. Moses, in fact, goes a step further and flat out says what the people have not said to this point. He accuses God. He accuses God of causing him wrong, treating him poorly. Moses is overwhelmed and says, I can't do this on my own. You have given me too great of a burden. Now notice what God does with Moses' complaining, though. In verses 24 through 30, he gives them 70 elders who are to lead Israel with him. On one hand, he breaks out in wrath against the people. But when Moses complains even more deeply, what God does is he rewards him. Those are two different, very different responses. But the difference is in the nature of their complaining. The people complain because they're inconvenienced. Moses complains because he's in despair. The rebels' complaints arise because they want ease and comfort. Moses' complaint is because he is drowning under the circumstances. And Moses' complaint arouses the compassion of the Lord. This is what God always does in His Word. The difference between grumbling and lament is the difference between one who complains because life is an inconvenience and I don't get what I want and the one who's drowning under circumstances and wondering, where is God? What have you done? I cannot handle this. God always responds compassionately to the weak, 
to those who lament because life is too difficult, God responds with a move of relief. Lament arises out of despair. Complaining arises out of inconvenience. Complaining is condemned. Lament's rewarded. Throughout the scriptures, lament is rewarded. We need to learn how to do that, brothers and sisters. When life is really difficult, we need to learn how to complain to God. We need to learn how to let our souls moan before Him in a way that arouses His care and compassion as a father who loves his children. But there's another reason that God responds so favorably to Moses. And this is the most important reason. It has nothing to do with the content of Moses' heart. It really has everything to do with the office that Moses holds as the mediator of God's people. He's more than just an Israelite. Moses is the federal head. He is the representative of the people of Israel. That's why in verse 2, when Moses sees the Lord's anger kindled against the people, Moses cries out and he prayed to the Lord. And as a result, the fire died down. Children, do you ever wonder what Jesus is doing now in heaven? You know, he, Don, Pastor Wallman had mentioned where we're going in this next series for you in your children's sermon. You'll learn about what Jesus taught, what he did. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He taught important truths about God's kingdom. He even raised the dead. And then he was crucified. And then he was raised. And now he's seated in heaven. But what's he doing? I mean, is Jesus just up there twiddling his thumbs, reading Sunday's paper, waiting for the Father to send him back so he can bring the new heavens and new earth. He's up there playing shuffleboard, wondering what's next in his mission and when he's going to come. No, this is what he's doing. He's pleading for all of the resources that his people need to live the Christian life. God answers Moses because Moses is pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, this. Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, referring to the temple. Those things were just copies of the true things. But Christ has entered into heaven itself. And he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. And when he asks, he pleads the merit of his own blood. And he says to the Father, I have died for this one. Would you strengthen her today? Life is too difficult for her. Would you give her this amount of grace to this portion of her life? I want more than for her just to be relieved of life's circumstances. I actually want her to be transformed. And I am pleading with you based on the merit of my obedience to you. Father, you said if I would go and live a life of righteousness and die a death, that she deserved to die, then you would reward me with her. And the Father joyfully says, I will. And so the writer of Hebrews is able to say that Jesus, because he stands and pleads for his people now today, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession 
for you. He's praying for you. Now. And you know what? It gets better. Because not only has he standing in God's throne room praying for you, he has put a spy in your chest in the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that spy knows your spiritual needs better than you do. Paul writes, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans chapter 8. So we see that the cause is unbelief, thanklessness, idolatry. The response of God to those who complain is either to break out in His wrath or to treat you based on Christ's intercession. And then that leads us to the last, the cure. The cure for a grumbling heart is the gospel. Hopefully you saw that coming. Set that up. If you've been here at Zion, you know it. The cure is always the gospel. Because the opposite of a complaining heart is a heart that's full of contentment. But what exactly is contentment? It's a word we use. We might know what it means, kind of fuzzy. The old Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs describes contentment in this way. That contentment is that sweet inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me repeat that and then unpack it. Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment is this. It's a quiet soul, a settled spirit. It's the opposite of a spirit that's restless and not at ease. Having infant in the house again after so many years, I've seen this so vividly recently. There is a difference, a pleasant difference, between a screaming baby who is discontent and one that is beginning to fall into rest because she sucks on a soothing bottle. It's a contented baby. It's a quiet, settled spirit. It's a soul that freely submits. It doesn't grumble in its submission. Jeremiah Burroughs says this about contentedness. He says, A contented person no longer tries to take our circumstances and conform it to our desires. Instead, a contented person has learned to conform their desires to their circumstances. Because we see in that, that what I have is what is good for me. What I have now is what my Father has freely given to me. And so it delights in every condition. Paul says he learned to be content in every situation. I know how to be brought low, prison, beaten, shipwrecked. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know where contentedness is there. I know where contentedness is when I abound. 
I found contentedness in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, he's saying my contentedness is no longer dependent upon my circumstances. Jesus has freed me. How has he freed me? Christians, we love Philippians 4.13, don't we? As soon as I say that, it immediately comes to mind. You know what it is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what Paul is referring to, the all things? It's not at your ability to bench press 350 pounds. It's the soul level work of contentedness. He says, I can really, literally, I can find contentedness in every circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. Because Jesus gives me strength. I can find it. It's not elusive. I know it's out there. Listen to this quote. This one commentator says it this way. I'm just dealing, wrestling with crumbling and contentedness. He says this. Grumbling distorts your vision. Right? Because it starts in the heart, you begin to see all of life through a a lens of discontentedness. Not my circumstances, maybe that way, but my heart is discontent. Therefore, I see my circumstances differently. Grumbling distorts your vision. It reimagines the past as a golden land. It despises the good gifts that God has surrounded you with in the present, and it completely ignores God's promises for the future. The root of grumbling is unbelief. Grumbling is an unbelief that robs you of your joy. It's the exact opposite of faith. Faith sees the past present with clear eyes and it gazes joyfully fixed on God's promises into the future. Faith believes God's promises to be certain no matter what the difficulties the present may hold. Faith laughs over short rations and hardships because it remembers that the present is not all that there is. And so here's the tool that we have. We have the gospel to do this hard soul level work. And what Moses actually gives us to us here in Numbers chapter 11. And Moses is going to give us three things. He's going to tell us to remember where we are, to remember who we are, and to remember what we have quickly. First, he's going to tell us to remember where we are. The Israelites had forgotten where they were in the journey. You'll remember that the Hebrew name for this particular book that we call Numbers is In the Wilderness. They'd also forgotten what they had left behind. Verse 5. I love the way that they say this. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. I mean, seriously? I mean, they were an oppressed people living under the oppression of a maniacal dictator. It didn't cost us anything except the slavery from day into dawn to dusk. It didn't cost us anything but our firstborn sons. They were slaves building another man's empire. They forgot where they were. They forgot that they were no longer in Egypt. God had literally freed them. They also forgot that what they were longing for, the better food, was coming. God had promised them that they would possess a land flowing with milk and honey. 
They're marching there. But in the meantime, they were in between these two realities. They were no longer in Egypt, and that was good news. But they were no longer in the promised land, which meant that they lived in the wilderness. And so do we. Let's not forget where we are in this journey. Life is much harder than we expect it to be. It will get better. The second thing we need to remember is who we are. I mean, grumbling causes us to see through these two different lenses. And the flaw in the lens of grumbling and complaining heart is this. I deserve better. And the gospel comes in and says, no, you deserve much worse. You are deserving much worse. You deserve the eternal wrath of God. That's what your sin has provoked in his presence. He's not given that to you. Even here, as he breaks out, he only breaks out against some and not all of the camp. He's kind and compassionate and slow to anger, as we heard from Psalm 103 this morning. The gospel comes in and says, you deserve so much worse than you're receiving. But Jesus got what you deserved. So that when you take him to be your savior, you get what he deserves. And what does Jesus deserve? He's the eternal son of God. He's the heir of all creation. He's the obedient son. So he deserves the reward of righteousness. And in Christ, we're children of God too. We've become heirs of all creation. And God cares for his children in the present life. End of story. If we don't have it, it's because our tender fathers knows that it is not good for us. Lastly, we need to remember what we currently have. Because what we currently have, we've received because of God's kindness. The Israelites completely lose perspective here. They complain about the manna. The manna showed up every morning like flakes on the ground. And look at verses 7 through 9 with me. Moses stops the narrative here. And he goes on a little discursus. He goes to the side and goes, let me tell you about the manna. This is what Israel forgot. It was... Like coriander seed, its appearance like that of bagellum. It was a, it's a funny word. We don't, I probably aren't, aren't familiar with it. It was um, a sappy, quartz-like substance. In other words, it, it, it looked nice. It didn't look unappetizing. God made the manna, which was his miraculous food that showed up every morning. He made it, actually made it look good. And the people went about and gathered it. It just showed up. It didn't cost them anything. It was, the, it was there because of God's free grace. He was kind, and he provided it for them every day, except on, Saturday, on Fridays. And on Fridays, they gathered two days' worth for two days' worth of food. And it was in such abundance that they had more than they could use. And it was pretty easy to use. It could be used in a number of different ways. Verse 8. They gathered it, they ground it, they beat it with mortars, they boiled it in pots, they could make cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. Now that doesn't sound all that appetizing to us, that's normal bread to us, but for them, that was an amazing luxury. And again in verse 9, when the dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell with it. 
I mean, this was a, just a tremendous provision of God's kindness. And they're grumbling. They forgot what they currently possess. That lens of a discontented heart caused them to look at the manna. And instead of seeing something pleasant that they thanked their father for, they saw something that had begun to become, to become awful in their sight, in their hands, and on their lips. We need to remember what we have and praise God for it. A, th- a life of thankfulness really breeds contentedness. Instead of looking at everything I don't have, I can begin to look at the genuine little blessings that God has given me, thank Him, and find that contentment is what grows. William Cooper, Cooper suffered as a man who was deep friends with John Newton, and he suffered depression most of the days of his life he would go in and out of phases of deep depression it brothers and sisters if you are depressed don't think that it is something abnormal in the christian life it is something that comes with god's people at times some of you wrestle more with others than others do don't feel like somehow you are less spiritually many of god's people through the history of the world wrestled with it is a beautiful thing, though, when contentedness meets depression. Because when you're depressed, discontentment is almost palatable. You can almost taste it and feel it. And out of one of those experiences, Cooper writes this song that I wish was in our hymnal. It's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It's just I just found myself repeating these words this week and thought, I need to share these with you. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. That's a metaphor for a difficult life circumstances. When life's hard, God's footsteps are right there in the middle of it. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage, take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Because behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. It means you'll see them eventually, what his purposes are. Unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And this is my favorite verse. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, but God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Confident. I'm, my circumstances right now seem so dire that I am deep in depression. But I know this. I know God's goodness. And it will intersect this. And eventually I will see that he has good purposes for this right now. Let me pray. Father, I would confess you that I am a grumbling man and I would confess to you O Lord that we are a grumbling people oh forgive us deliver us once again into the 
adequate hands of Jesus Christ who can hold whatever we entrust to Him against that day. And we pray, give us thankfulness now in a longing for the world to come. And we pray, send your Son. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Until that day, teach us to groan along with your Spirit who intercedes for us. We pray all this, our precious Savior, in your great and awesome name.